The text for the sermon is taken from the epistle. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Advent uh, is a season of anticipation meant to prepare us for the celebration of the nativity of our Lord as well as his sure and certain second advent. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, relentlessly call our attention to the incarnation. There's a hymn that we know here uh, that uh, says, Behold, the great creator makes himself a house of clay. Hark, hark, the wise eternal word like a weak infant cries in form of a servant is the Lord and God in cradle lies. Last week I preached actually about the, I used the text for the uh, gospel this week, last week because I, I wanted to cover that but also wanted to uh, look at Romans 12. That boy coming of age in the gospel narrative is the second person of the blessed trinity, the son of the father, the son of Mary, and it is that same Lord who died on the cross, that same Lord who was raised bodily from the dead, who ascended bodily into the abode of the blessed trinity. And it is that same Lord who will one day return to his redeemed and renewed creation here on this planet that is already teeming with life, whose destiny is to behold the face of God forever. The fact that Jesus is born of the flesh of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is equivalent to our flesh, and the fact that he was nailed to the cross, that he died, that he was raised uh, from the dead, body and all, that he ascended into heaven, body and all, those actions of the Word made flesh demonstrate God's absolute solidarity and commitment to our flesh, and indeed to the whole material creation. What is assumed by the word of the Father is healed, perfected, and saved. Gnostics hate this. Gnostics want to transcend flesh, rise above, sometimes I do too, but not in the same way that they do. They want to rise above it. Uh, they want to rise above the material world. They want to shed this tricky body of tissue, muscle, bone, and fat, this carnality this human nature, and be rid of it. But Paul was always reminding his little parishes of the glory, the shame, the worth, the vigor, the virtue, and the weakness of flesh. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, Notice that you're not presenting your bodies as many living sacrifices, but all of your bodies are presented to make up one living sacrifice. Which he says is acceptable to God, which he also says is your reasonable service. St. Paul and all of the other apostles and the whole church, ancient and modern, agree that God has committed himself to materiality, and in particular, he has committed himself to the material substance of our human bodies. God loves flesh. As I said Christmas, I have no idea why he loves flesh. But I know for a fact that God loves flesh. He has chosen to anchor 
flesh within his divine life forever. The immutable, unchangeable, invisible God has become visible. He has entered our mutability, our changeableness by the incarnation. And as I have said many times before, a man, a human being, body and all, is seated at this moment upon the throne of the universe, which defies all imagination and sense, but again, it's still the truth. This also separates us from all other religions that I know of, anyway, uh, since the central project of other religions is to escape forever what is referred to frequently as the prison house of flesh. For us, it is no prison. Our God-given project is to love our bodies as the temple of the Holy Ghost and to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And that has everything to do with worship. And that's what I'm going to talk about for a few minutes right now. Are y'all with me? Uh, a lot better than the nine o'clock. Right. This is the this is the advanced crowd, the uh, CP, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This verse answers the question: What kind of worship pleases God, and why? Some folk count myself in this, probably most of you, uh, have probably uh, never thought uh, of this verse from within a liturgical context. Uh, certainly that was my case as a, as a kid growing up uh, in, in the uh, tradition I grew up in. Uh, I never thought of this uh, liturgically, but that is very, very much what it is. The word that we have translated service is used exclusively in the New Testament to mean the worship of God. Though, so you can, every time you see the word service, uh, you can translate that into worship, which is your reasonable worship, which is your reasonable service. They're both accurate. That use of the word service survives in our attention uh, in our tradition, when we refer to our acolytes, our crucifers, our deacons, and everyone else uh, who serves, uh, the, our boat, boat boys, as serving at the altar. That's what we mean uh, by that. They are worshiping God, serving God at the altar. What I want you to understand, one thing I want you to get is this, that worship is not a warm-hearted feeling. That is not what worship is. That certainly is what our culture wants it to be. They want you to have an experience. I don't particularly care whether you have an experience or not. I want you to be here worshiping God, whether you feel anything or not, and God does too. And in fact, I submit to you that doing it when you're not feeling all warm-hearted and mushy toward God is even better because it shows your love for God and, and your determination to do God's will. Worship is an activity. Furthermore, Paul makes a point that God calls us to reasonable worship. 
Our translation has it reasonable service. I'll say more about reason after a while. But if that's not enough to make the point, uh, there are other words in this sentence that pile meaning the same meaning on top. The word he said that he uses, present, present. That word, uh, as it is used here, describes uh, the act of presenting a gift to God on the altar. It presents the, it, it, it is the very act, presenting is the very act of taking, taking the sacrifice and placing it uh, uh, upon an altar. Of course, all of this wouldn't have to be explained uh, to, uh, to the church back then. It was second nature uh, for them. They understood this. Uh, this is the presenting of gift God in a, in a formal liturgical setting. It refers to the specific act of placing the gift on the altar. That word, the word present, uh, which is used for sacrifice, is exactly the word that's used here. It appears 11 times in the New Testament, and it always means an offering to God. An offering to God. Now, if we take this text merely moralistically, which is exactly the way I was taught my whole life as, as a child growing up in, in the tradition I grew up in, uh, as an appeal to Christians uh, to exercise bodily discipline against sin, which is a good thing. Don't say I didn't, I said it was a, not good to do that. That's not what I'm saying in this context. The way I was taught what this meant is to present my body a living sacrifice is to discipline my body against sin. Uh, and when I do that, you know what happens? I make it all about me. And it's not about me. And it's not about you. It's about God. And, and so it, it's, about, uh, it's not about my willpower. Uh, it's about acceptable worship. If we make it about willpower, if we turn this into just another moralism, uh, then, uh, then we miss the point entirely. Uh, and the good fruit of righteousness, which St. Paul is absolutely confident will follow from presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice and the Holy Communion may be lost. Now, it might help us to remember that we are committed, we have committed ourselves by the grace of God to Christian orthodoxy. So I want to say something about that. Uh, because we have to remind ourselves and remember that the word orthodox does not just mean believing the right thing. That's what we generally take it for. You're orthodox. So I believe the right stuff about Jesus. I believe the creeds. That's not what it means. The word uh, orthodox uh, is not merely about believing the right thing. The word literally means worshiping the right way. Worshiping the right way. Ortho, which means correct, doxa, worship. Right worship. Correct worship. I realize that I may sound high-handed and overbearing to many well-meaning Christians who care deeply, as we all should, um, that people feel comfortable and at home in Christian worship today. That's no small thing. I am not belittling that. Uh, but it is a matter of fact that our desires, our desires need training and formation. And St. Paul is robustly confident that the worship that pleases God 
will also form right desires in our hearts. That's exactly what he's saying. Either he's right or he's wrong. Worship, the kind of worship that we're doing, not because you come and you have a wonderful, sweet, uh, oceanic feeling uh, and, and you get a blessing. Getting a blessing has got nothing to do with worship. Getting a blessing makes it all about you again. Getting a blessing turns it into just one more utilitarianism. What have you done for me lately, Jesus? So he gave me a blessing this morning. Orthodoxy is right worship. It not only, now listen, this is something I, I listen to what I'm saying. Not only does it mean correct worship, it may also mean correcting worship. Are you with me? It's a verb. It can also be a verb. Orthodoxy means correcting worship. It's worship that will correct our lives. Not only is it the right way to do it, it also corrects our lives. Worship may, by the grace of God, become remedial. It is remedial. Uh, is corrective in the sense that worship is a matter of fact how God is saving us all for real. For real you're being saved and you're being saved by the right worship of God. The word orthopedic, you know what that word means. But when you take it apart, orthopedic means correct walking. Right? You know that. Uh, so what I'm saying is just as, I've used this metaphor before, but just as orthopedic shoes may prevent or correct a crooked walk, orthodoxy, correct worship, may prevent and correct a crooked life. That's what I'm saying in a nutshell, and that's what St. Paul is saying as well. So worship that pleases God has a total effect but there are many parts to it, and each part, praise, adoration, confession, absolution, our resolution to, br to bring our lives into conformity with the life of Jesus Christ, all of that unfolds, enfolds us as it unites these various activities into the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as we worship God and the Holy Trinity. In a nutshell, once again, total effect, the total effect is this, that we... We are what we eat, we imitate what we admire, and we become what or whom we worship. Absolutely. We are what we eat, we imitate what we admire, and we become what or whom we worship. So for example, now I want to say something about the different strands of worship for just a minute, okay? You're all still with me, correct? Okay, good. There are various parts to worship. What we do in worship, when we sing, is different from what the preacher does when he preaches a sermon. We do not expect the same thing from the singer that we expect from the preacher or the liturgist, except that they are alike in being attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible. We do not want our preachers nor our singers sleepwalking when it comes to the worship of God Almighty. 
when we sing a congregational hymn, it is usually a hymn that we have sung many times in the past, and if it's new, even if it is new, and if we approve the content and the form, we will probably sing it many times in the future. When our choir sings an anthem, uh, it may be an anthem that we've heard before, but even if it's new, it is the case that it is not new to the choir because they've put hours and hours of rehearsal into their work. This is what it takes to worship God in beauty and in holiness. Uh, thus, we expect to hear, uh, again, uh, we, we expect to hear it again, a, a, new, a new hymn or a new anthem, because learning a new piece of music requires attentive work, intelligence, practice, and direction, so that we have invested, listen, who we are into that, into learning that piece of music. Uh, but we also desire to perform it again. They desire to perform it again. We desire to hear it again because each performance perfects skill and perfects the piece of music as a sacrificial gift to God. Uh, the work of the celebrant, what Father Sean is doing today, the work of the celebrant uh, in the Mass is similar to the work of a singer. He, too, is expected to stick with the text. And any celebrant who decides to add his personal extemporaneous prayers to the Mass is exercising a supreme arrogance. And by adding, he would actually be subtracting because he's going to be distracting us from the worship of God. The celebrant performs, and over time, he invests who he is in the liturgy. He gathers a feel for the words and the phrases and the sentences and the movements and the times of silence, and he wants to do well, not as entertainment, but like the congregation, like the cantor, like the choir, like the uh, uh, boat boy, as one who is praying the common prayer and singing the common songs of Zion. Are y'all with me? When, it, when we sing a hymn, we usually cover all old, old ground, and we do a good or a better job. Uh, uh, the celebrant, when he says the Mass is covering old familiar ground, and he's covering it for better or worse, we do our best. But even the preacher, even the preacher must cover old ground if he expects to grow himself, and he expects to uh, uh, discharge his responsibility to his congregation, which means the preacher should not be... Uh, uh, dishing out comfort food uh, in the pulpit, uh, which means that the preacher ought not be stuffing himself with comfort food. I'm using that metaphorically right now. <laughs> um, should, we shouldn't be doing that either. Shouldn't be com uh, stuffing himself with comfort food instead of real study that's work because it will make him fat and lazy and unfit for preaching. Singing a hymn or an anthem, celebrating the Mass, serving at the altar, preaching a sermon, have different functions, but they are all necessary for the good of Christ's church, and all of these activities enfold into a reasonable bodily worship of the Blessed Trinity that has total effect. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is 
that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our ability, I've got two paragraphs left, important paragraphs. Our ability to grasp a reality, to be who we are, to rightly judge and choose the truly good is our created endowment, a gift bestowed upon us by God Almighty. Our first parents misuse, misuse ignoring and truncating uh, that endowment is what happened is what we call the fall. Uh, but we're not on our own and we're not uh, at the uh, beck and call of the fall. Through holy baptism, we have received the Holy Spirit, and God has infused into us theological virtues and holy desires. We now have God's reason, God's judgment in Jesus Christ, the reasonable conclusion for people who believe what I've been saying here is that the worship of the Blessed Trinity should be our entire focus in life. It should be central to everything that we do. Correct? That's why true worship involves the use of humanity's highest powers. The very powers that were once ignored, the very powers that are used today to turn us against God and against the church. Uh, true worship appropriates our endowment of reason and understanding to pass correct judgment. So to know and to choose the truly good as we devote ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to Jesus. In true worship, our minds, our highest faculties are renewed by the power of the resurrected Christ. And the more we worship Jesus, the Messiah, and the Holy Communion, greater will be our grasp of the true, the good, and the beautiful. And greater will be our ability to discern the good, the true, and the beautiful in this naughty world. We are engaged in engaging our highest faculties in the worship of God, and we learn to distinguish between our frequently warring desires and the true good. Uh, we learn to tell the difference between the reality of the Blessed Trinity and the illusions that this world placed before us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.